We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to The Morning Briefing here on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Super producer JQ's here sitting in the driver's seat because it's a little rainy here in our nation's capital. And host Eric Game is running a little bit behind, stuck in some bad traffic. So he will join us shortly. But for right now, we have got a fantastic show. It's Tuesday, which means we'll be talking with Justin Brown from Hill Vets to find out the latest and greatest things going on on Capitol Hill that concerns veterans. And hey, hey! Check out the website, ConnectingVets.com, your one-stop shop for all things veteran and military-related. And make sure you follow us on social media, where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us to get the latest and greatest information. You'll know exactly when things pop off in the veteran sphere, because we stay on top of that stuff, because we are the veteran sphere. Everyone here at ConnectingVets.com knows what it's like to put that uniform on and take it off for the last time. Except for our National Guards woman, uh, Kayla Jackson, but she's cool too. <laughs> anyway, fantastic show. Let's start off by seeing what's going on here on ConnectingVets.com. And if you're not visiting ConnectingVets.com at least 12, 15 times a day, you are missing out because there is so much good information on here. Let's talk about this. How about, uh, this is a story from our own Kayla Jackson, five facts about the nation's first female Air Force pilots. Let's see. Women Air Force service pilots were, uh, or WASP, were the first American women to fly American aircraft. While stationed at 120 Army bases throughout the United States, WASPs filled roles that were open due to male pilots fighting overseas in World War II. Here's five interesting facts about the nation's first female pilots. <clears throat> Wasps were officially organized on August 5th, 1943. Wasps was a combination of the Women's Auxiliary Ferrying Squadrons and Women's Flying Training Detachment. The Wasps were a group of 25 women pilots who were tasked to deliver planes from fac- uh, plans from factories to military bases. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, women gained interest in serving as pilots in the Army Air Corps. Jack, Jacqueline Cochran, a well-known av- aviator, tried to convince the general of the Army Air Corps to allow women to serve as pilots, but was met with obstacles. She instead recruited women to serve in the British Air Transport Auxiliary. Upon returning to the States from a trip to England, she was able to convince the general that the Army Air Corps of the Army Air Corps to have the WFTD support other duties of the Army Air Corps by checking flights, instructing male pilot cadets, and towing targets for anti-aircraft gunnery practice. That's pretty cool. Alright, fact number two. Until 2016, wasps couldn't be buried in Arlington National Cemetery. Though wasps served in many of the vacancies for male pilots in World War II, they were considered a, quote, paramilitary civilian organization. 
The bill, which was signed into law in 2016, amended legislation, quote, to provide for the interment in in Arlington National Cemetery of the cremated remains of certain persons whose service have been determined to be active service. Fact number three. Over 1,000 wasps were trained and flew over, what's this, woo, 60 million miles. The women were trained in Sweetwater, Texas, where the National Wasp Museum is located. That's pretty cool. Fact number four. Wasps were awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. In 2010, wasps were nationally recognized for their, quote, revolutionary reform in the armed forces during World War II. The wasps were granted full military status in 1977 and officially recognized as veterans after then-President Jimmy Carter when he signed the GI Bill Improvement Act. And finally, a documentary about wasps is currently in production. As part of the Commemorative Air Force's Rise Above program, which teaches young people stories of courage about rising above adversity, the film CAF Rise Above Wasp will highlight the journey of the women's Air Force service pilots through history. Carol White, who is producing CAF Rise Above Wasp through Hemlock Films, says these women are her personal heroes. To tell that story and to use that sh- and to use that story to show little girls and boys that women can be strong, brave leaders, says White, is a great opportunity. So it's one of those things you don't really think about, you know, when you think of World War II, you always think of, you know, the battling bastards of Bastogne, or you think of Iwo Jima. You don't think about all the things that happened back home and uh, the the people that served and the fact that women were serving in the United States Armed Forces during World War II. And so this getting these uh, ladies some recognition is a great thing, and I am very happy that we are doing so. So lots of really cool stuff in there. And uh, I am going to look something up here. Hang on. I'm going to go to ConnectingBets.com Facebook page, which you should be doing on social media, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow ConnectingBets.com to get all the latest and greatest information. And I'm going to see who is watching if the computer will stop being so slow. Here we go. Yes, there we go. Terry Allen liked the stream. Terry, thank you very much. We appreciate your support. All right. Let's look at what else is going on on ConnectingBets.com. This is an important one. Remember how I said it was rainy here in our nation's capital? Well, that's because there's a hurricane bearing down on us, Hurricane Florence. And our own Jonathan Copanger wrote a story about how to keep VA benefits and services flowing during Hurricane Florence. So if you live in the... North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, D.C., Maryland area, this is for you. Hurricane Florence is a Category 4 storm and is headed for the United States with the Carolinas directly in its path. With maximum sustained winds of over 130 miles per hour, the damage could be catastrophic. Here's some VA information that you need to know during, before, during, and after the storm hits. Question, is my VA open? Just like in the military, the operating status for all Veterans Affairs facility is posted daily. To find out if your to find your medical facility or center, go to lo- the locations section of the VA website. 
This country is split into separate Veterans Integrated Service Networks, or VISNs. Click on the VISN number that corresponds with your state. Next, find your medical center. Don't worry about the outpatient clinics or CBOC links. You'll find the operating status for these smaller clinics under the umbrella of the larger medical center. Once you locate your primary medical center, find the operating status button at the bottom of the gray links on the left side of the page. This reads like stereo instructions. <laughs> you can subscribe to receive text updates here so you can know about closures as they happen. You can also find links to emergency services in your area on this site. Pharmacy Disaster Relief Plan. <clears throat> During national disasters, when the medical centers are closed or too difficult to access, VA activates the Pharmacy Disaster Relief Plan. This allows veterans with a VA ID card to take either a written prescription or an active VA prescription bottle to specific locations and receive a 14-day supply of medication. Once activated, information on VA's Pharmacy Disaster Relief Plan will be listed on the operating status page of your primary VA medical center. So keep that in mind. Here's one for education benefits. If you're attending a school that is closed due to the storm, the VA considers your attendance active and continuous. This means that your payment will not be affected as long as your enrollment was submitted before the storm hit. If you're using the Montgomery GI Bill, you should continue to verify your attendance as usual, even if the school is closed. For any questions about the VA's educational benefits, call the Education Call Center at, get, write this down, 888-442-4551. Once again, that's 888-442-4551. And look what the cat just dragged in. Joining us now is host Eric Dame. Eric, how was your drive? Uh, about an hour and 45 minutes of nonsense, utter nonsense. A little bit of fog, a little bit of rain, and uh, nobody remembers how to drive anymore. Yeah, people seem to forget how to drive once a little bit of water gets on the road. And we were just talking about uh, Jonathan Copanger's story on ConnectingVets.com, which, again, you should be going to, like, every single second of every day, about how the hurricane is coming in towards the nation's capital area and the Carolinas mm. and how the VA will stay open, will remain open during those times and the services that are available. Right. And I was hearing on the radio several times because I heard things happening over and over and over again while I sat in traffic. Uh, that they are evacuating the eastern shore area of Hampton Roads, Virginia. Huge military presence down there. But something I wanted to talk to you about, Jake, that I, I was listening uh, to the broadcast on Facebook Live. Of course, people can listen to that every morning at 7.15. What's today's date? I didn't say the date, did I? No. It's September 11th. September 11th. It's been 17 years. And I was thinking about this yesterday. And thinking about where I was, it's one of those, uh, I guess, touchstone moments for those of us who were in the military at that time, and, and I was. But where were you on September 11th, 2001? I was in Dulles High School. I was in uh, high school geography class. Oh, okay, in geography class. And what do you remember about that morning, about when it happened and when you became aware of it? Well, it's very odd because... School started on normal, but uh, eventually we got to the point where uh, uh, the uh, pres the 
president, the principal, came over the intercom and said that anyone who had family in New York, please report to the principal's office, mm. which was very odd. But then the word started spreading around that something had happened in New York. So all the teachers turned on the TVs, and that's when we saw – I actually was in another class – Rise it turned the TV on, and that was right before the second plane hit, the yeah. second tower. I was already in the Navy. I joined in 98, so I'd been in for just over three years at that time. I was a petty officer, second class, I think. I had just put it on, or was just about to, one of the two, uh, on the USS Saipan. No, I had definitely put it on, because I got there, I think, in January or February of that year and put it on pretty soon after I got there. And I was teaching the indoctrination class for public affairs. So basically, all the new sailors that arrived to the ship um, up through like petty officer first class, I think chiefs did their own thing, officers did their own thing, went through a class to learn about, you know, how to do things on the ship, what was available to them, get all their medical stuff done, all their dental and I was one of the people that spoke to each class, and I talked to them about public affairs. You know, don't talk to the media if you're not a subject matter expert and it hasn't been arranged by our office, the public affairs office <laughs> of the ship. Nobody ever listened to that advice, it seemed. Uh, and while I was teaching that class, the career counselor for the ship who ran the INDOC program came in. His name was NC1 Scarborough. I couldn't remember his name. I actually had to te uh, text an old chief last night from the Saipan and ask Kept thinking his name was Carpenter for some reason. Scarborough Carpenter. Anyway, he came in and told me, hey, um, you're from the New York area, right? And I said, yeah, I'm from just outside the city, about 40 minutes or so. He said, yeah, so a, a plane hit the World Trade Center. And I was like, oh, wow, that's crazy. But my first thought wasn't an, an airliner, and he didn't say that. I thought a small plane, like one of those little uh, Cessnas or ultralights or something. And, and it had happened several times before in the city. It's a massive city with really tall buildings, and there had been occasions of small planes crashing into buildings. Um, there were a couple famous instances where baseball players were actually killed in those type of accidents uh, during their off time. And then he came back in a little while later and said, just pulled me off to the side and very quietly said, I need you to send everybody back to their division, uh, and you come back with me to ours all right. So told everybody like, all right, I'm being told, go back to your division. We'll reconvene when we reconvene. And it was at that point that he said a second plane hit the world trade center. I said a second plane he said, yeah, it's not good. I was like, no, I, I imagine it's not. And it started registering. And I asked him as we were walking to our division, like, Hey, well, what kind of planes are these? And he said, they're, they're airliners that crashed into them. Went back to our division. Uh, they said, hey, we don't know what's going on. Everybody stay close. There was a TV lounge pretty close to where we were. We were actually in a barge. Uh, the ship was in dry dock, the Saipan at the time, down in Portsmouth, Virginia. There was a barge, and we went to the closest lounge and actually watched it happening on TV. And uh, it was horrifying, of course. I remember one thing that sticks out is there was a... Uh, uh, a sailor there, and I use that term very loosely, who was uh, a piece of garbage. He was a problem child long before that, uh, laughing as it was going on. And people, somebody eventually grabbed him and, and dragged him out of the room. And I don't know what happened to him. I didn't see him much after that. I do remember he got in a lot of trouble a little while later. I think he was stealing uh, uh, Kevlar vests and trying to sell them to like drug dealers out on the street or something like that. So not a uh, not a good person. But watching that and then getting called back to our division and they said, this is what we're going to do. We are we don't know exactly what's going on. There's no more planes in the air. 
we're going to release everybody except for the duty section. So we were an eight section duty, which meant you stood duty once every eight days. They dropped it down to four so that they had double the manpower to stand extra watches and do all that stuff. And then the chaplain, Chaplain Maurice, uh, called, uh, they put out over the 1MC, the ship's announcement system on the barge there for everybody from the New York area to, to meet with the chaplain. And that's when it dawned on me that my mother at the time was working in Manhattan and actually spent uh, a lot of time at the World Trade Center, had a lot of meetings there. I think they had an office there, one of her clients, one of those two things. And uh, it, it ended up becoming a pretty rough couple of days. I think it was two days before my duty section came up. And I wasn't able to reach my mother for a couple of days. So really, I had no idea what was going on. And then you just kind of compartmentalize that and you, you put it away and you go, well, you know, I'm sure she's OK. If she's not, I probably would have heard something by now. Of course, now we know the, the widespread destruction that happened. It took a long time before everybody was notified Then I finally did hear from her. I called and she answered. She had finally been able to get out of the city. But just a... Um, a nightmarish couple of days. I remember going back to my barracks room. I hadn't yet moved into my apartment out in town and just watching the news for like 24 hours straight, not sleeping, watching it, calling family to see if anybody had heard from my mom and, and just trying to figure it out. This was before MySpace and Facebook and all that stuff where you could check in and mark yourself, uh, mark yourself as safe during a, a tragic event like that. So it was really just this, this very weird, quiet, sense of of dread that was going on all around the barracks normally a loud place bunch of young sailors running around not a uh not a good memory at all and then finally changing the channel and watching some old sitcoms uh family ties i remember specifically like five <laughs> episodes of it on and then going in to stand duty uh you know and when we stood duty you did eight hours of watch on eight hours off eight hours of watch on so you stood 16 hours of watch in a 24-hour day, guarding the dry dock was one of the things I had to do. So I had a 12-gauge, a Kevlar helmet, and a Kevlar vest and just standing there. And the other thing that I recall, and anyone who was in uh, Norfolk at that time can back this up, it was unseasonably hot for that time of year. It was like summertime weather on September 11th in Norfolk. So the, the uh, cooks, the mess specialists at the time, later culinary specialists, brought out jugs of water, you know, the big igloo coolers, like when you play football or whatever that right. they'd have. They bring those out so that you had something to drink to keep yourself hydrated because you're wearing a Kevlar vet. You're sweating. It was hot. You're standing out there in the sun. One of them had the bright idea of making it a little bit nicer by putting some, like, Kool-Aid-type drink in it. Here's the problem. Because it had been unseasonably hot, the bees had not yet left. So you had like bees just gathering around these <laughs> water coolers that now had a sugary drink uh, dripping out of it. And then, you know, things really never went back to normal after that. A lot of things changed. I mean, I remember when I was going to Fort Meade for my school back in 98 and 99, there were no gate guards. They didn't check you coming onto the base most of the time. If they did, it was on Friday or Saturday night and they were checking for drunk drivers most of the time, he just drove right on to Fort Meade, a place where NSA was, a place where Naval Security Group activity, uh, Army armor units are there, all sorts of important stuff. That, of course, changed immediately. That that went away for good. There was no more open base access uh, after that point. And then, I guess it was nine years later to the day, September 11th, 2010, is when I got in a plane in Guam 
to travel to Fort Dix, New Jersey, with a stop in San Diego for a few days first, to start training to go to Afghanistan. And then I'd arrive in Afghanistan uh, just before Halloween, or just after Halloween, I guess, 2010. But one of those things that uh, life changed, man. I mean, being in the military changed. Being in the military for me was one thing up until September 11th. Then after that, it was just a totally totally different lifestyle. It was a totally different feel to everything. Everything got very serious because in 98, was it peacetime? I suppose not. I mean, when I was at boot camp is when the, uh, when Al Qaeda hit the embassies in Africa. So there was stuff going on. There was the coal bombing when I was in Iceland, there were things taking place like that. But, but on September 11th is when it, it went from, yeah, there's some stuff going on to, yeah, it's going down. And not that long after that, I was scheduled, I guess it was in February or so, January, February 2002 is when I was scheduled to PCS to my next duty station. Right at the time I was scheduled to PCS, a couple weeks before the Saipan left to go pick up the Marines and head over to Iraq. And uh, they ended up putting me on the stay behind list so that I'd be able to fly out. They offered me the ability to, to deploy with the ship. I had no interest in doing that, going on on that ship. And it ended up that that ship would break the record for a non-nuclear ship at the time. I'm sure it's been broken since, but break the record for consecutive days at sea and uh, had a really rough time out there. Also had a guy on the ship uh, set off a hand grenade in the birthing area, which never got the full details on that. I knew who it was and it was... uh, well, it wasn't all that surprising, I guess, when I found out who it was. But yeah, there was uh, a lot of stuff to remember from that time, and it's still fresh in my mind these days. I mean, that is our Pearl Harbor. The earlier generations, like Pearl Harbor to me was something that, of course, I learned about, I'd seen movies about, I knew all about, but I didn't know what that felt like until September 11th, 2001. And being in the uniform at that time, it was just a... Uh, it was an it was a it was a dark day. It was an interesting day, and it was a day that everything changed for us. Let me ask you, Jake: Did September 11th play any role in you joining the military, or was it something you had been considering before that? Or uh, a little bit, because at the time I was 15 years old, so I wasn't really a military age yet. So I hadn't right. considered, you know, when you're 15, you don't care about what you want to do with your life. But I um, I did when it came time for me to join. That was right when we kicked off Iraq. And so I realized that there were things going on in the world. September 11th made me realize that my little bubble isn't as secure as I thought it was. And it was two, I was wrong. It was not 2002. It was 2003. So I was on the Saipan for another year and a half. And then it was March of 2003 that I arrived in Italy. So it would have been January or February of 2003 that they deployed. So I have my dates wrong there, but it was a, it was a time where uh, a lot of people, went to their recruiters on September 12th, 13th, 14th. The other thing I remember of the night of the, uh, the was it the of the 11th or the 12th, I needed to get out of the barracks and stop watching the news. So I drove to my buddy Mike's house. You actually met Mike. He came over for the fights. Uh, oh, night, yeah. The guy with the glasses. Went over to his house and we all just, it was, it was like the party house where you'd go to have a great time. And everybody felt so strange. There was nothing. So we were like, all right, let's just go for a drive. When we drove around, there were people standing on the side of the road holding uh, candlelight vigils, like just standing out there with American flags and candles uh, the night of the 11th or 12th. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was, man, it was a, it was a strange time. And it, you just got the feeling that like, you know, 
life is never going to be quite the same after this, and it certainly never was. And then, of course, just about a decade later, I'd be headed over to Afghanistan, and that was, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a big day, big day, and a big time, and something that I feel uh, you know some people have forgotten, and there are other people who haven't forgotten it. They don't know it. If you're turning seventeen, if you're turning eighteen this year, if you're turning eighteen today, you were one year old when September 11th happened. The kids graduating from high school next year, most of them won't have been alive when September 11th happened. So that's really through no fault of their own that they don't understand what that was like. But what I think bothers me is that there are plenty of people who who were around at that time and who were there and who do remember it, who now seem to have forgotten uh, what that feeling was like. And, and it was a time of great unity after that, too, for our nation, whereas, you know, horrible things can bring people together. And of course, that didn't last all that long. No. Nope. Uh, the bickering and everything started up uh, soon after that. But these days, I do think that people have forgotten it. And that's why I think it's such a great thing that we've had you know, great organizations like the 9-11 Promise Run that we had in last week. And we're going to replay that interview today as they prepare to arrive in New York City. I think it's appropriate to replay it today. Right. Um, and we also have uh, our own Matt Sainsing is actually at the Pentagon right now waiting for Vice President Pence to speak. So we have continuing coverage of the 9-11 ceremonies going on on ConnectVets.com and on our social media pages. So make sure you follow along. Anyway, uh, we will have, we need to get to break, so we'll have to cut this conversation short. We'll be back with the 9-11 Promise Run right after this. We will stick around. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets Every Day is our slogan, and it is, in fact, what we do. And I'll tell you why we do it. Because each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn the uniform. Just importantly, we know what it's like to have taken it off for that last time. The struggles, the obstacles, the difficulties that you can face when you get out of the military, our team is here working hard, tirelessly, some might say, every day to make sure that you have the information, the data, the assistance that you need And we'll try to be entertaining occasionally, too. Go check out ConnectingVets.com 15, 20 times a day. And be sure to follow us on all social media platforms. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Right now, we have a returning guest in the studio, and he brought a brand new guest along with him. The returning guest is the founder of Flags of Valor, Brian Stortz. And the new guest is Jen DePoto, the founder of the 9-11 Promise Run. So, good morning, Brian. Good morning, Jen. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, Eric. Thank you for having us. Brian, we've already talked to you before. This is old news. I mean, yeah, it was like a year ago, so some people who heard it may have forgotten. But give us the brief rundown of your time in the military. You're one of these weirdos who served in two different branches, right? I was. I came from a small but big military family, served in the Army, pre-9-11 as an uh, airborne infantry guy in the 82nd Airborne. Um, Got out, went to college, and then, you know, when college was happening, 9-11 happened, and I remember where I was at 8.46 a.m. in macroeconomics, and that's the only thing I remember about macroeconomics was that I was there during 9-11, and uh, well, I was upset like most and walked across the street at campus and asked how I can serve again and join the Air Force. So 
had an opportunity to be an Air Force Special Operations pilot for 14 years. And after you got out, you faced some struggles uh, leaving the Air Force. And during that time, as you were kind of uh, ending your time in the Air Force, is when actually Flags of Valor first began. You started actually working on wood in your garage and not very well from what I remember of our first Correct. discussion. Yeah, I got injured on my eighth deployment. And after I had spinal surgery, I was you know, recovering and rehabbing and I didn't wear my uniform anymore and I didn't have my flag on my shoulder and I just wanted something cool for my house, but also um, something to mentally help me get over some, you know, rabbit holes that I was going down and never thought I would. So kind of stumbled into woodworking and taking raw materials and painting it and found that very therapeutic and, and launched Flags of Valor. Flags of Valor, if you've ever been to the Connecting Vet Studios, we have a Flags of Valor flag that Brian presented to us the first time we interviewed him. It's been sitting in the studio of our window uh, since the day that it came in here. A beautiful flag, and I've been uh, honored to see you present those flags at several other events, including the Military Times Service Member of the Year Awards, and most recently at the uh, Purple Hearts Reunited event in Washington, D.C. at the Fleet Reserve Officers Association. So, along with creating these beautiful products that people can find on your website, flagsofvalor.com, you guys are also quite involved in the veteran community and making sure that, you know, these these beautiful pieces of art, because that's really what they are, and they're not just a product, are, are given to people who would really appreciate them and given to people on these very special occasions. Why is that so important for you to do? Well, I think the first flag I ever created, um, I donated to a spouse of, of one of the, you know, one of our brothers in arms that, that uh, passed away. And, and that feeling, that philanthropic feeling of giving someone something and not asking for anything in return was awesome. And I didn't want to forget that. So besides empowering and employing and remembering our veterans um, by hiring them and, and giving back is really important to us. We always wanted to do that, whether that was raising almost a million dollars in three years uh, for some great organizations or just giving back by by donating some of our art and woodwork, uh, you know, materials and stuff to other great organizations, and and also why we're here today with Jen Depoto from the 9/11 Promise Run, who, as I understand, it comes from a family that's uh, closely aligned with a group that many veterans feel a close affinity to and uh, really a kinship with. That being the first responder community. So, Jen, tell me just a little bit about yourself and your background, and then tell me a little bit about the 9/11 Promise Run as well. Yeah, thanks, Eric. So I come from a family of first responders. I'm a native to the Washington, D.C. area. And, uh, you know, three years ago, uh, when it was the 15th anniversary of 9-11, I was training for a half Ironman that was over in Cambridge, Maryland. And I really felt a calling to do something uh, to help make such a tragic moment in our nation's history and turn it into something good. And, uh, you know, I had struggled with faith for a lot of years. And, and I, when I was sitting on my bike trainer, I just honestly felt something calling me to do something. And I was like, I think I'm going to run to New York and I think I'm going to raise some money for charity and started thinking, well, I, I don't want to do this by myself. I've been given some gifts. I want to involve other people and unite as many people and again, turn something tragic into something good. And so I threw the idea across to some friends and uh, the first year, it was only a group of seven of us, me being one. And uh, this year, we have 62 runners and seven teams. 62 runners, seven teams going 240 miles in a relay up to New York City. I'm from the New York City metropolitan area. We lived on Long Island before we moved down to Maryland. 
I don't like doing that drive. How is the run going to be for those teams? <laughs> you know, it, it's actually it's almost as if you're that that moment, those three days that we take to do it. You don't feel any pain. It's camaraderie. You are empowering communities that we run through. You're uniting people. The run is completely supported by firehouses and police departments. So it gives us an opportunity to stop at various firehouses, thank them for what they do for the local community, allow them to connect with the runners. And the runners are, it's a group of people from all different backgrounds. So it's really an opportunity to kind of slice so many different slices of our community, bring everybody together, kind of like how we all did right after 9-11. And of course, that day, as as Brian said, he remembers where he was. I know where I was. I was on board the USS Saipan in in the indoctrination class, actually teaching public affairs skills to some newly arrived sailors when uh, uh, the guy who ran the class came in and said, hey, don't you have family in New York City? And I said, yep. So a plane just flew into the World Trade Center, and I thought to myself, uh, that's odd. It's happened before, though. I remember uh, Corey Lytle, an MLB pitcher, a plane that he was on crashing into a building. It's happened a few times. Then he came back in a few minutes later and said, all right, cancel the class, send them back to their departments. This is something big. Another plane just hit the other tower, and we started to realize what was going on. That was something that The military saw from a distance. The first responders saw it up close and personal. First responders from New York City and in the following days from the entire tri-state area, Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, everybody coming down into the city to help out and do what they can. All these years later, do you worry that people have forgotten about what that was like for us? I know with with some kids today, I mean, there are 18-year-olds who don't remember this happening. They were a, a year old when it happened, essentially. 100%. I think that's a huge reason for the run is is I think, you know, the country is always going to be a target and there we shouldn't forget what happened. We always need to stay vigilant. The last several years, uh, I've asked every runner to raise $1,000 for a charity that I choose this year. uh, And they were a recipient last year is a national nonprofit, Hope for the Warriors. So it's a military veteran based uh, national nonprofit. Moving forward, I just got blessed by the IRS to be my own charity and uh, so we'll be raising money for scholarships of kids of first responders and military. And the reason for that is I want kids to always go to school, get educated so they can continue to be vigilant. They can remember to honor um, and, and keep our country safe. You've done this before, obviously. Uh, There's a big cross-section between the first responder and veteran communities. A lot of veterans get out, become police officers, become firefighters, become EMTs. How has their response been in the previous uh, promise runs for to what you guys are doing? Yeah, you know, the, the first responders that are involved, uh, though I haven't been able to convince any of them to run yet, um, they support us so much. And when we show up at a firehouse, whether they're providing a water stop or we stay at firehouses at night, the amount of thanks that we get, it's incredible. It, it, it stuns me because we're there to thank them and they just appreciate us recognizing what they do on a daily basis. Um, And especially as we get closer to New York, as we get closer to that tri-state area, so many of them did respond. And so I think it's very therapeutic for them to see that people are still remembering, still honoring those lives lost. Um, You know, it's, it impacts them as much as it impacts the runners. 
it impacts a lot of people. And what's going on with the 9-11 Promise Run is truly one of those great things. It's bringing a lot of wonderful attention to an issue. We're speaking with Jen Depoto, the founder of the 9-11 Promise Run, as well as Brian Stortz, founder and CEO of Flags of Valor. Brian, how did you become associated and familiar with the 9-11 Promise Run? Are you one of the people running 240 <laughs> miles? We are. I mean, part of uh, so I met Jen and heard about this amazing um, you know run that she puts on every year. And uh, we thought, what what a better way to give back than to not only have a team in it, but to to ping our network now that we've been blessed with, and and so getting UPS involved, which I think has two teams running, yep. um, Under Armour, which is a partner of our company, has done a lot with us to 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 donate some of their apparel for Jen's run, yep. um, and and just to be able to help her grow this um, has been an, it's really cool. Now I might change my mind. Um, on Tuesday based on how I feel, but, but I will know that, you know, at 846 on on 911, I'm definitely going to know what I'm doing that morning because I'm going to be running for a great cause. There are uh, no shortage of wonderful things happening around that day. And I think each one of them deserves attention. And of course the promise run is going to be something that people can actually go out and see for themselves. You apparently, I'm going to double check on this, but from what we were talking about, are going to be running by the development that I live in coming up this weekend. If people are interested in finding out what the route is and going out and saying hello or cheering you guys on or asking Brian Stortz why he's lagging so far behind, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, so uh, we're on social media, so they can check the Facebook page, 9-11 Promise Run. I'm going to post the route so that folks can certainly go and, and stand on the streets and you know, with flags, whatever they want, cowbells, whatever, and cheer the runners on. We go through a lot of different areas. And from a runner's perspective, it's cool. They get to see industrial parks, farm country, college campuses, all sorts of different things. So we start out at the Pentagon. We run through D.C. We run up through Maryland. We run, we run right through Baltimore. Uh, and then we keep going up to Elkton. Major cities are Wilmington, Delaware, Philly, uh, Trenton, and all the way into New York. Who is taking part in this event? Is it all, as Brian was saying, I mean, her UPS, Flags of Valor, Under Armour. Are there individuals who are taking part in it, or is it a fully a team and corporate sponsored type event? Yeah, so it's seven teams made up of active duty military, veterans, a lot of government contractors, private practice folks, age range. I think our youngest runner is 23 years old. Our oldest runner is in their 60s. Um, men, women, we actually have a number of husband and wife pairs, which I think are awesome, you know, cause that's just showing their kids, you know, Hey, always remember and honor. Um, so it, it really runs the gamut. That's awesome to hear that there are so many people taking part and they come from all walks of life. It sounds like it's not like these are just, uh, as you said, you've been trying to get the first responders to take part, but I haven't been able to convince them. Uh, good luck trying to get the military vets to do it as well. Other than, you know, those in shape folks like Brian, you're not getting me to run 200. I see you shaking your head. This well, is radio. I, mean, I was it just going to say, and I told Jen this, I mean, I, I hate to run. Oh, I despise I it. it. And, it's the um, worst. You know, I was forced to do it in the army and then not so much in the air force, obviously, but yeah, um, you guys have chauffeurs for everything you right, do in the Air Force. Force. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fly around airport. Golf carts. Yeah. <laughs> right. So um, when when I started thinking about this, uh, it seemed like a, a great fit. It's going to force us out of our comfort zone to really support such an incredible cause. So I think whatever, I mean, we've endured as a country, um, we can do it as a runner in three days. It's a small price to pay to be able to to do something so good for for. Gens for the Nyland Promise Run, for veterans, for military, for just America in general. 
Is there going to be a way, Jen, as they're making their way from D.C. up to New York City? Is there going to be a way for people on the side who, who happen to see the teams moving along to know what they're doing? Or are they just going to think, oh, there's a bunch of people running along like crazy people and yeah. it looks like they're not stopping? <laughs> They'll think that for sure. <laughs> Although the communities, I think, have come to kind of recognize us, especially as we get to the tri-state area. One thing that um, I do that I think is really cool is I give uh, what's called the flag of honor. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's the flag that was born out of 9-11 where it has the name of every life lost. Uh, and every team has that flag. And as they are changing out runners, that flag is always out there on the road. So we are visible. And that's a good thing. And, of course, also want to be visible and safe as you're going along absolutely. on this run. Uh, yeah, Brian's running. Yeah, absolutely yeah. we do. We're going to be safe, right? Uh, that's got to be an issue as well. I mean, running up Route 1, essentially, as you were telling me, is the main route, the old post road that used to run from Boston down to, well, D.C., essentially. Um, what are the safety precautions that you have to take to make sure that your team's okay as they run 240 miles on the open road? You know, thankfully, we run on a lot of sidewalk. There are certainly areas where the runners are running on a shoulder. Uh, I do think that the flag poses like help for them to be visible. I've asked all the runners to certainly wear reflective vests. Uh, and the the van is never far away from, from the runner. So it, we run it as a relay. So the runner will jump out and say, I'm going to run four miles right now. So the van has a choice of whether, whether to go up four miles or still stay within eyesight of the runner. That way, everybody feels safe. We're speaking with Jen DePoto. She's the founder of the 9-11 Promise Run. Brian Stortz is the founder and CEO of Flags of Valor. 9-11 Promise Run taking place this weekend. So a little bit late for people to sign up and take part in the run. But for those who are hearing about this, and obviously you just got a charity status from the IRS, as you were telling us, this is not something that's ending this year. This is going to continue on into the future. If people hear this and they're interested in taking part in future editions of the run, what's the process they need to go through and who should be looking to take part in the Promise Run? I think as many people as possible should really honestly consider it. It's something that I think it's a, it's a life-changing experience, and it allows them to experience something but also inspire people around them. Uh, so the website is 911promiserun.com. They can certainly go there. They'll learn about the, the run. They can sign up and register there. Moving forward, uh, the vision I have is for us to include the, the third site in Shanksville. So I would really love to be able to establish relationships where I have teams going from D.C. to New York as well as D.C. to Shanksville. That's the spot that people forget about oftentimes. 100%. I was able to actually connect with the Flight 93 Memorial and got permission to take all of the names from Flight 93 and give those names to a runner this year. So every runner is actually running in honor of someone that was on that flight. Wow. It's really... Uh got to be an emotional event too having taken part in it before i mean what's that experience been like when you get up to uh, anyone who's been driven through the northeast corridor you get up to where manhattan first comes into view and for those of us who remember the trade center and like for me I, every time people visited we'd take them to the top of the trade center because it was faster than going up the statue of liberty and you had a better view from up there then seeing it gone the next time that I drove up, I think it was October of 2001 when I drove up, seeing it not there and seeing the uh, beams of light. Of course, now you've got the uh, the new uh, World Trade Center up there. What's that experience like when you come around the bend and you first see the skyline of Manhattan during the run? You know, it, it's it's everybody experiences a moment at some point during those three days, whether it's at the start, whether it's in the middle, whether it's as we get close to New York. 
Um, my personal experience was from the first year where I was running. I was in New Jersey somewhere and I was carrying the flag of honor and a woman drove up next to me in tears. And so I stopped running and she explained how she had just lost her son in Afghanistan. And so, you know, you see that impact that you're having on just people that are driving past you. And then as we get to New York, we take the Port Imperial Ferry over to Midtown West 39th Street. And right. That's three miles south of the the Ground Zero. And I line up every one and twos, and I organize it to where it's active duty military first, then it's veterans and first responders, and then everybody else falls behind. And those three miles are incredibly emotional. There's a lot of tears, um, it, and it's also a lot of silence. And as we, it, it, that's a multi-purpose path. I'm sure you recall last year where there was uh, a guy who ran his pickup truck down that path. Yeah, he killed a bunch of people. I was I was working at a news station in New York at the time, and it was a horrible day and a horrible event. Yeah, yep. we run that same bike path. And so we're running with, you know, people walking their dogs and people biking on that path. And so to kind of give that empowerment and resiliency to New York, it's awesome. New York City is a, an amazing place, having grown up just outside of it, having worked in it for a couple of years prior to moving down here to Washington, D.C. It's also a place that is the site of the worst attack in our country's history, uh, the worst terrorist attack in our country's history, I should say. That being, of course, the September 11th, 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center. We're talking with Jen DePoto, founder of the 9-11 Promise Run, and Brian Stortz, founder and CEO of Flags of Valor, about that run. You know, Brian, when your team decided to get involved in this, well, first off, which members of the Flags of Valor team are taking part in it beyond yourself? We know that you're doing it. Was it an easy decision for your team to make to actually get get involved in oh, the Promise 100%. Run? 100%. I mean, anything that we can get behind supporting this great cause in, in our country and being very very patriotic, is, it's, an, it's an, easy, uh, an easy decision for us. Um, we've got four other craftsmen veterans that are running with us. Uh, we've got our vice president running with us. We've got um, our customer service front office. Julie's running with us and her husband. So um, we even have my nephew running, who is an incredible story. I don't know if we have time for a quick story. Of yeah, we I'm sure running. do. We got about five minutes. So Jen left. doesn't even know this story. Um, so my sister was in the Navy and, and right before she went in the Navy, she had a child and ended up giving her child up for adoption. So I have a nephew. Um, as he grew up, uh, you know, he's 22, he's in college, UC Irvine. Uh, he wants to connect with his mom, his biological mother, and he reaches out through Facebook, they connect. Um, my sister, they end up not talking for a while, and he doesn't know what's going on, so he Googles her name and finds out that she passed away, and she had mm. passed in between two of my deployments. Um, and so that was really hard for me. That's something that I've kind of compartmentalized. It's been tough for me to deal with. But I do like anything else, Beyonce, put it in the box to the left and don't worry about it, right? Right. Um, Because that's what we do in the military. We compartmentalize. Um, So I got a call, you know, maybe a year after that he found out she passed and and we connected and we haven't met yet. Um, We still haven't met to this day. Um, And that's been, what, six years ago. And so I've been kind of putting it off because I don't want to kind of relive those emotions, but I need to as a, you know, as a man and as a person for growth and everything else. So this race, uh, this run, sorry, is actually going to be the first time we meet each other, and we're meeting each other because of the 9-11 run. Wow. That's amazing. So he's going to be on our team, running with Team F, you know, Flags of Valor with us in Jen's 9-11 Promise run, and it's just a really cool story. The first meeting face-to-face of That's two right. relatives, including a, a veteran who was uh, injured on a deployment, Brian Stortz, the founder of Flags of Valor. 
quick question about that. Jen, he just said race. It's not a race, but it is a relay. So what's the format of it? Is everybody running 240 miles total, or are the teams kind of spread out over the distance that they're supposed to be doing? How's it actually do, uh, being done formatically? So each team will run 240 miles, and I let them choose how they split up the miles. You know, there, there's other relay runs out there that dictate, hey, you have to run a six-mile segment here, an eight-mile segment there. And I didn't want to put any of that stress or pressure on any runner because uh, it is not it is not a race. Like, I don't care who gets to the firehouse first. Nobody cares because it's that's not what this is about. Right. So if we were all on a team, we would be in a van and I would jump out of the van and maybe I'm feeling good right then and there. So I'm like, I'm going to run six miles. So I run six miles. When I meet the van, you maybe have just done a, a six miler and you're like, I'm not feeling so good. I'm just going to go out for two. Okay. And then we kind of do hopscotch all the way to the firehouses where we stay at night. Okay. Which from a person that doesn't run a lot until now <laughs> is very nice to be as a person participating in the run to not have to worry about, okay, I got to run eight miles straight at a, you know, 730 pace and it's, it's all good. Like we will figure it out like we always do, and it's very stress-free. That does sound good. And now uh, next year, maybe I will take part. I'll run like a mile for my team each yeah, day. There yeah. you go. One mile <laughs> each day, right? and then I'll be the guy uh, sitting on the sidelines with like a six-pack going, good job, good <laughs> job with all the running that you're doing. There it goes. Yeah. Well, of course, if people want to find out more about the 9-11 Promise Run, you already talked about the website, but let's say it again. If they're interested in finding more out about it, what's the website and what are the social media contacts that people can check out? www.911promiserun.com. We're on Facebook. Uh, Twitter and Instagram. There you go. And you can check out the 9-11 Promise Run at all those places. Of course, Flags of Valor still creating amazing pieces of artwork that, despite being such great art, uh, that some of quite museum quality, I would say, they're available for purchase. And you can get them. They make great gifts for the veteran and first responder and proud American in your life. If people want to find out more about the products that you guys have made over at Flags of Valor, which, uh, from what I've seen at the recent events, is actually uh, uh, widened since the last time we spoke. It sounds like you guys have some more stuff going on over over there. Where do people go to find out more about the Flags of Valor team, the, the veterans over there and the products they're creating? We have, you know, our, our e-commerce at flagsofvalor.com and then um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Flags of Valor. And we're also going to be constantly updating on the run the whole time and helping the 9-11 Promise run through their Instagram, kind of grow their audience. That is really great and it's great to see so many organizations working together as you said ups as a team in this under armor a lot of great people taking part in what is a great event the 9-11 promise run you've been listening to the morning briefing here on intercom radios connectingvets.com i'm your host eric dame jake hughes is your producer connectingvets.com is your website and we mean that each and every day our team comes into work putting out content that we think can help you and help you live that best veteran life the best way to be kept abreast of everything that's going on there, follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. One little click on your mouse or tap on your phone, and you can be one step closer to living that best veteran life. And that does it for this week, actually. A short Labor Day week. This Friday edition of the show has been a pleasure, and we'll be back bright and early on Monday morning to be with you again. So stay safe. Have a great weekend. If you're on the route for the 9-11 Promise Run, say hello to them, and we'll see you again on Monday.
helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is the slogan, and it's what we do, and I'll tell you why we do it. Because each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn the uniform of the United States military. Just as importantly, we know what it's like to have taken it off that last time. And so, each and every day, our team of veterans and one active duty member of the National Guard are working tirelessly to get information and news and everything that can help you live your best veteran life up on the site. The site, of course, is ConnectingVets.com and the face social media. I was going to say the Facebook, but it's more than just Facebook. The social media, we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. little click of your mouse or tap on your phone and you will be living your best veteran life. Kind of like Justin Brown is. He's the founder and CEO of Hill Vets, and he joins us every Tuesday morning, just about, and joins us right now. Justin, good morning. How are you today? Good. How you doing, man? Good to see you. It's been a rough day traffic-wise. It took you an hour and a half to get here, and you live how far away? I live like 30 minutes away, so yeah. For bad, me, it's normally, normally 45 minutes. It took an hour and 45 minutes today. It yeah, was... It's not even that crazy, right? Am I am I wrong? No, like, it's 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 foggy and misty, and it was like there were a couple accidents, but nothing major. It's not like there was a huge accident where I was driving. I've noticed that in the uh, Maryland, Virginia, and Washington D.C. area, people slow down for rain the way that I expect people to slow down for slow down for snow. It's it's insane. I've never seen people slow down while driving this much for like a drizzle. It's yeah. kind of crazy and, and kind of frustrating, but yeah, what are you going to do? Here we are, and we are here to talk about some good things. Let's start it off with talking about Hill Vets itself. You actually have a new leadership program that's launching in just 15 days, just over two weeks. It's called the LEAD program. Tell us about it and what's, what, what stage of the process you, you're you, in now. You did that math really, really quickly. Well, I'm, 14 I'm plus impressed. one. I'm good at that. That's the kind of math I'm good at. Adding uh, below 100, I'm your guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so Hillvets leads. So as you know, Hillvets uh, is the network for veterans in DC government and politics. We've done a really good job of bringing the community together here in Washington. Uh, to add on to that, we launched the fellowship program. Well, that allows veterans from across the country to get here. We place them on the Hill, train them up, try to get them a job. And, you know, for us, this was the next logical step in that, you know, we've helped all these veterans. We've gotten them in the doors of Congress. We've gotten them placed as lobbyists for, for veteran service organizations, et cetera. Uh, for, for us, this represents that next step, which is providing some really solid leadership training to our veterans who are here in the community uh, in, in Washington, D.C., involved in government, politics, or policy, and, and really pairing them with some incredible uh, leaders and, and, and getting some leadership training, some policy training, as well as some mentorship. Um, we have uh, more than three secretaries involved, former secretaries involved in the program, uh, a number of members of Congress uh, and senators, and just some really incredible folks that we're, we're pairing these veterans up with and, 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 and you know, trying to, trying to help them move up the ladder, if you will, over the long term. 
veterans in general, even if you did uh, four years and got out as an E3, E4, something like that, you were in some sort of leadership position. There's a baseline of leadership development in the military that you just don't find for people with a similar amount of time and experience at most jobs. However, in the civilian world, leadership can take on a slightly different tone. And in Washington, D.C., leadership is something entirely different. So that's kind of what this program is aiming for, is to give people who already have that military leadership baseline the tools that they need to succeed in their post-military career, correct? Yeah, no, you're you're hitting the nail on the head. Leadership should be a lifelong art of training, right? I mean, you should constantly be looking for ways to improve you know, who you are, what you're doing, uh, et cetera. And you're, you're right. Uh, military veterans have an excellent baseline of this type of training in terms of, you know, they're, 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 they're very mission oriented. Um, they tend to have some good ground, uh, ethics with regards to, you know, like I'm, I'm a Navy guy, so it's honor, courage, commitment, right? Yep. Um, and, and, and you don't necessarily see that in, in the civilian sector as much, but what's great about, um, I think having that military veteran background is, is you do have that kind of ground level of training, but you can continue to layer onto that. And it's, it's very important that we as veterans uh, not take it for granted and assume that we've learned everything we needed to learn, you know, during our, our service and that, you know, there's, there's no more learning to be had, mm. if you will, post-service in terms of trying to be, become your best you and continue to move the needle forward and becoming, uh, you know, an incredible leader uh, and, and, and frankly, better at whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. And of course, again, if you did four years in the military, compare that to four years in college. When you're coming out of the military at 22, you've had leadership experience. There's a good chance you stood watch armed with the firearm, and that takes a lot of responsibility right there. The average college student, uh, maybe they had uh, some sort of leadership position in like a club at their school. It's a little bit different. Yep. When it comes to leaders and uh, veterans, leaders in the veteran community, Ken Falk of Boulder Crest Retreat comes to mind for me almost immediately. He's leading up an amazing team over there. Boulder Crest, of course, has their original location in the uh, foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia. They opened up a second location out in Arizona last year, and now... They are launching yet another expansion, this, the Post-Traumatic Growth Institute. I know Hillvets and Bouldercrest uh, work together. Ken is on your board of directors. Yep. What can you he's, tell us about this institute? He's one of our lead mentors as That's well. That's right. Yeah, so we're, we're excited to have him involved. Again, you know, here's a world-class uh, veteran leader, um, you know, working with other veterans to help them become their best self. Uh, is the founder of the EOD Foundation, uh, you know, really trying to move forward with with that population of, of military service members and veterans. Uh, founded Bouldercrest Retreat, which is doing some incredible work for veterans in the space of post traumatic growth. Right, this idea that 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 which doesn't kill you kill you makes you stronger. And um, there's been some incredible research within this capacity, and you know they've spent over million dollars on uh, some research that they've done on their program warrior warrior path but long story short this is their effort to really take that research and continue marching it forward and show you know that there are some really incredible ways we can try to help veterans become their you know again best self not to keep repeating myself but you know to take a focus of you know hey here's some some things that happen to you it's not about what's wrong with you it's about what happened to you you know, how do we get you to take a look, hard look at that and then move forward in terms of what it is you want to do to become your best self? 
And so they're doing incredible work. I'm really excited. I'm, I'm going to go to the event tomorrow. I don't know if you're coming out there with us, Eric, but uh, hopefully you are. And I had planned on it, but now it looks like I won't be able to. Yeah, okay. Scheduling right. issues, unfortunately. All right. All right. But um, uh, definitely looking forward to it. We're going to have uh, Congressman Brian Mast is going to be out there and uh, a number of other uh, VIPs as they you know, really open up one more chapter in the great work that they're doing. They really are. Uh, Ken, Dusty, the rest of the team out at Boulder Crest in Virginia, and of course their second location in Arizona, helping out uh, veterans out in the western area. They're doing amazing work and thinking outside the box in working to address those issues. Uh, Ken Falk's book, Struggle Well, is uh, really a great blueprint and kind of tells you what they're doing and what they've found that works and what they've found that doesn't work all that well. And of course, finding new ways to do things always a good thing. We're speaking with Justin Brown, the founder and CEO of Hill Vets, who is someone who does a lot of things, new things, old things, keeps an eye on what's going on around Washington, D.C. as it affects veterans, particularly those looking to get involved in politics. Big story that we've talked about a little bit on the show, Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon, owner of the Washington Post, has donated $10 million to With Honor. That's an organization that is uh, nonpartisan. It's looking to get veterans elected to Congress on both sides of the aisle. How big is this from someone who's, uh, you know, got a lot more knowledge of Washington than the average bear, I would say? Yeah, I mean, it's it's huge, right? Uh, I mean, it's the biggest political gift <laughs> world's richest man has ever right? given. And, <laughs> and um, you know, hopefully a, a good sign of things to come. Uh, you know, With Honor is doing some really incredible work. Um, you know, and we've, we've been, we've been privileged to actually have their support for both the Hill Vets 100. And then we have our fall soiree coming up They're They're sponsoring, uh, both, you know, most of our events at this juncture. And we're, we're, we're really incredibly grateful to have their support, but long story short, you know, we're very focused on the community here in Washington, DC as an organization, Hill Vets, um, with honor is very focused on getting more veterans elected to Congress because they believe, as do as we do as well, that you know veterans really have a rare identity that is trumping partisan politics. I mean, we're we're we you know we veterans, military service members certainly have political views, and we all should. But what's incredible is that you know we're we're Democrats before we're Marines. We're or I'm sorry, I got that flipped up. <laughs> we're, 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 we're Marines before we're Democrats. We're you know uh, Marines before we're Republicans, whatever it may be. And well, we well we certainly all have political views. Um, you know there there there's this really incredible respect uh, that veterans and service members have with one another, and you know kind of regardless of your ideology. As a fellow veteran, uh, especially as a fellow veteran on Capitol Hill, I'm I'm certainly going to listen to your opinion, respect your opinion, uh, and even more so, we've got a ton of common ground that you, I would be able to find, you know, some space that we can work together, regardless of our ideology. I mean, we we would be able to sit down and figure out a way uh, to to agree or compromise or come up with some form of outcome, and we've seen this happen before, and. Uh, you know, I'd say the most recent example of this in a big way is the post 9-11 GI Bill. I mean, the post 9-11 GI Bill was two uh, Democratic senators, uh, one one Vietnam vet, one World War II vet, and two Republican senators, one Vietnam vet, one uh, 
World War II veteran coming together, creating a compromise, and you know, passing what ended up being certainly the most landmark legislation that will ever affect my generation of veteran. Um, you know, and those senators were were, were Chuck Hagel, um, uh, Senator Jim Webb, John Warner, and Frank Lautenberg. You know, today that camaraderie doesn't exist. And you know, I've heard uh, some pretty senior senators say, you know, that the World War II veterans. You know, they, they were the they were the adults in the room for a right. long time. And, you know, that there would there would be, you know, tons of fighting, whatever it may be, but at the end of the day, it ended up being these senior veterans who again were the adults in the room, brought everybody together and said, Hey, well, whatever, we can fight, we can do whatever, but at the end of the day we gotta get work done. And we're starting to lose that today, right? I mean, work's not getting done. Hmm. I mean, that's that's the reality. I mean, we're not passing budgets. Uh, you know, work continues to get kicked down the road. I mean, even right now, we're we're looking at a Congress that you know is potentially going to get out of town because you got a you got a storm coming in. Well, I would argue they got they got plenty of time. You know, there's plenty of work to do. Maybe they should actually do the opposite and hunker down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also I don't think the storm is uh, slated to hit Washington D.C. as hard as say like Hampton Roads or right. Naval Station Norfolk is or something like that. Right, but their worry is is that they're going to get stuck here, right? And you know maybe that's not such a bad thing, you know. <laughs> but but the challenge is is that the political you know climate is that they all want to go home to run for office so that they get to come back here. I mean we've kind of lost our way in terms of why we're doing this. I mean, everybody, you know, is, is seeing this in a very individualistic, what about me? What about my election? And, you know, the, the culmination of this is, is turning into a kind of a broken political system. Right. And, and, you know, frankly, we need to get back to the, to the day of, you know, and I was recently reading uh, John F. Kennedy's book, Profiles and Courage. But, you know, we need to get back to the day where, you know, members of Congress, you know, frankly, aren't scared to take the hit because they're doing the right thing, yeah. and 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 some of that might 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 come at the cost of some people losing elections. But you, we can see what the the opposite of that is too. Is it just ends up with these huge waves of people being frustrated? So they're like, oh, this side goes, <laughs> that side goes, this side goes, and um, you know, anyways. Rolling on a tangent here, but but back to with honor. I mean, the idea here is fundamentally, you know, that for whatever reason, military veterans and service members uh, have this pragmatism about them that rises above partisan politics. And the hope is, you know, that similar to what we had, you know, post World War II, the more veterans we bring into to, to office, and we start to push into the political system and it's not dissimilar with you know some of what Hillvets is trying to do and getting more veterans engaged in politics and policy but that that will raise our overall narrative it will raise the the level of discussion it will increase um, the effectiveness and efficiency of our government uh, that that is the the hope so this 10 million dollar gift from Jeff Bezos represents you know one-third of their 30 30 million dollar goal uh, they are a super PAC uh, so what that means is, you know, largely, you know, we're talking about media help. Um, right. You know, they can't, they can't, you know, they can't spend money directly on a congressional candidate's campaign. Um, 
So, you know, you're, you're, you're going to see, you're going to start seeing ads and commercials and things of that nature. And those commercials will be on behalf of 33 candidates that they're currently backing, 19 Democrats, 14 Republican. Their goal is to get 20 of those 33 elected. You're someone who pays attention to all the elections involving veterans. How accomplishable do you think that goal is looking at the 33 races that they're uh, sponsoring someone in, basically? <laughs> Thanks for throwing me on the spot. Um, you know, I, I, I think I think they're going to I think. You know, we're going to see a lot of veteran candidates win this cycle. Um, how many of the, the the thirty that they're endorsing? I, I'm not sure, but I, I I know a number of the candidates that 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 they are supporting, and you know they're running incredibly solid races. Um, you know, we're seeing some really fun veterans <clears throat> all across the country. You know, uh, really inserting themselves into the national dialogue, making waves. Uh, you know, they, 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 they do incredibly well in terms of commercials. I mean, all of these veterans have really good stories, right? And, yeah. and, um, you know, but they're having to differentiate themselves too, right? It's not, it's not enough to just run as being a veteran. Uh, you know, so what we are seeing is, you know, veterans who are emphasizing, you know, sure their service, but also, you know, maybe their small business skills or, 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 you know, that they did X, Y, or Z after they got out of the, the service, um, generally just getting out and, and, and playing the, you know, I'm Rambo card, uh, isn't, isn't working. Right. Um, and, and, and veterans have learned from other veterans, or I should say, especially, especially our era veterans, post nine 11 veterans have really, I think, learned from, from veterans of, of previous lost races like myself, <laughs> you know, when I ran, I wrote about it. Uh, you can you can go and pick it up and, and check it out. It's called the "How to Lose an Election in Less Than Ninety Days," <laughs> and um, you know. But there there were lessons learned throughout the process, and I think um, veterans didn't do so well as we you know kind of started you know kick, kicking the tires and trying to get into races right um, in terms of our success rates. But I think you know things like the veterans campaign. Uh, things like other veterans writing about, you know, their elections, win or lose. Uh, those have all been beneficial as we've kind of moved the needle forward. Um, and now you have groups like With Honor, um, you know, Vote Vets. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving some other groups out here. It's not intentional. But long story short, you know, there are about five legitimate uh, veteran groups or PACs out there that are that are working pretty hard. Uh, to see veterans get elected. And, you know, all those resources were, were certainly not in place, you know, even five years ago. And so I'm not surprised to see the number. And then the other thing is that, you know, veterans are starting to cycle through school. You know, they're getting their, you know, bachelor's, grad degrees. They've got some, some more w real world experience. All of those things are culminating into, you know, I'd say this 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 real uh, effect where you just have a ton of veterans running, and you know that you've had veterans that have won at the state and local level, and and they're starting to move up the ladder now, right? Yeah. So they're, you know, you've got a number of veterans who maybe were a state delegate or a state senator, and now they're trying to, uh, and, you know, there's an open seat or um, there is a um, you know, they can run against the incumbent situation. So overall, I mean, I think we're, we're, we're going to see a landslide of, of new veterans in this, 
this Congress. I don't have a specific number, but I, I, I feel pretty safe saying, yeah, I think 20 is, is very reasonable, um, if, not, if not more than that. Well, if those 20 or more, as Justin Brown predicts, do get elected to Congress, one of the things they'll have to deal with is the VA. And right now at the VA, the implementation of Cerner, essentially allowing medical records to move between DOD and VA uh, a lot better than they currently are, has a lot of support. It's also got a lot of problems. What can you tell us, as we've got about five minutes left here, I know there's a lot going on, but what can you tell us about where we stand with the Cerner implementation and what's going on at the VA, uh, specifically since Secretary Wilkie came into power over there? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Secretary Wilkie's come in and he's he's highlighted that uh, DOD and VA are going to be joined at the hip, uh, quote unquote, on on this, uh, you know, Cerner project. Uh, as we've discussed, Department of Defense has launched a similar product called MHS Genesis. And the real hope of this whole project, right, and we've, we've, we've discussed this a hundred times, but, you know, is, is to have one seamless electronic healthcare record. So the day you come into boot camp till the day you die, you know, as a veteran, mm -hmm. um, you would have one healthcare record that moves throughout that system. So we're not, you know, telling young sellers to, to, to Xerox five copies of 300 pages. And, oh yeah. And, um, so what started as a nine-ish billion dollar project has now bloomed into a sixteen billion dollar project. Will probably bloom into an even larger project. Um, there have been a number of failures on the DoD side of this contract with MHS Genesis. It's been rolled out at Fort Lewis McCord in the new in the Northwest, as well as I think some other stations. Just this scathing IG report that highlighted, I think, something to the tune of one hundred and sixty errors that would be considered fatal potentially wow. um one month later va buys the same product <laughs> or a, i should say a similar product is is a fairer statement but again you know looking to link these two together so that you have one product um you fast forward to kind of where we're at today you've got uh james uh Gifrer, I'm, I'm not sure if that's the... the it's an oddly spelled name, I yeah, will say. Yeah, yeah. Someone who has a hard-to-pronounce last one, I think his name is Gifrer or something, something yeah, to that effect. Yeah, so he's he's recently had his Senate confirmation hearing, and, uh, you know, that, that, that follows as, you know, you had the um, EHR Modern, Modernization's office chief, Genevieve Morris, who, who departed five weeks after getting appointed to this new role. Mm. Uh, you know, so, I mean, things I think are, are Congress is, is rightfully extraordinarily concerned about this project. Um, this is one of the biggest IT projects in, it, certainly in the history of the VA, but I would argue in, in, in government um, in terms of the cost. To put this into perspective, uh, you know, we, 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 we created GPS for half the cost of this project right now. And that, wow. that required rockets going into space. Yeah. And, and it's it's so, amazing. So, you know, to, to put it into perspective, that's kind of what we're talking about. I mean, it's a ton of money. There's a ton on the line. There seems to be a lot of consternation with the direction of where this thing is going. There's certainly, you know, some new people coming in with this new, new you know, um, uh, VA chief information officer uh but at the same time it's clear that there is you know a lot of 
turmoil as well when you have you know people who who got put into the the lead position for this job leaving five weeks into it um i've you know heard some very senior it officials uh you know say that this project isn't even in the zip code of hope wow which is (laughs) which is really concerning um you know when we're talking about these these dollar amounts as as you know congress uh, recently launched a subcommittee focused on this issue uh, and, you know, I think the hope is, is just that there really is some incredible oversight that there is, you know, a huge spotlight put on this project so that it is a success because at the end of the day, we need this to be a home run for veterans. We do. We're speaking with Justin Brown, founder and CEO of Hillvets here on the morning briefing. Let's keep in mind that it's been the better part of a year since the VA started taking applications for a plastic ID card to get free pancakes and only one third of those uh, 140,000 who put in the request have actually received that ID card to this day. So uh, another perspective is it, is it, point is it there. Right? Yeah, I got mine. I got mine. <laughs> I didn't get mine. <laughs> Joe Chanelli <laughs> hasn't gotten his. A lot of people haven't. But we're getting good information from Justin and all the guests here on the morning briefing. As we finish up this edition of the morning briefing, Justin, if people want to find out more about your organization, about the Hill Vets Lead Program and the Hill Vets House Fellowship, where do they go? Uh, check us out at hillvets.org or find us. On Twitter, at Hillbills. It's not at Twitter, huh? You changed that. Good job. You've been listening to the Morning Briefing Tuesday edition. We'll be back tomorrow with another great show. Take care. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.